Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Junior was all about results. Warner Hodgson was all about the, the show and the go. 
Now, speaking of the Winston. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I already know what the question is. <laughs> the answer is no. Dale and I were friends, but I knew when he told me I didn't mean to wreck him. I knew he lied. Junior wasn't interested in helping Daryl take that championship and go to Rick Hendrick. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the 150th episode of the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, can Whoa. you believe it, man? Fireworks, confetti. <laughs> no, I can't believe it. <laughs> 150 episodes, the century and That's a half. That's amazing. That's yes. amazing. And we're still going strong. We are still going strong. We're gathering momentum again. I cannot wait. I absolutely cannot wait to reveal some of the things that we've got in the works. You know, we've had the little slip up with ACBJ, the, the little slip up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've had the big gigantic car crash with ACBJ, but as far as the podcast itself goes, I'm looking forward to making at least a couple of announcements here in the next two or three weeks. It's going to be, cool. I know you are, Rick. I know you are. I got a pretty good idea of what's coming in. I think the listeners are going to love it. One of the things that I do every week when I put the episode together is I keep a file of the very quick sound bites that I use when I mix the intros together. I've been keeping it for almost three years now. I'm like, what in the world am I ever going to use this for? So for the 150th episode, I came up with something to justify if for no other reason than to justify keeping this file of very short sound bites, I thought it might be fun to put this together and see if everybody can name the person who is speaking. Now, us being us, let's make things interesting to celebrate us putting up with each other <laughs> for 150 <laughs> episodes. Listen to the clips and the person who can name the most correctly in order I will send a copy of the February 19th, 1998 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That is one of our most iconic issues ever. That featured coverage of Dell Earnhardt's Daytona 500 victory. You know, Rick, that was a very good publication because there was so much news come out of Daytona with that historical victory. And I'm pleased to say we covered every bit of it. The winner will love it. Not only did it cover Dell Earnhardt's Daytona 500 victory, it was our biggest issue ever. Right. Take right. a guess at how many pages it was. Do you remember? I'm going to say 144. That's impressive. 144 pages. <laughs> how about that? <laughs> now, that is one of the issues that I have scanned myself because I wanted to make sure that it is preserved for future generations. That was a job just in scanning that one issue. It took me two full days to scan 144 pages. I'm not surprised. I really am not. I can tell you something. When that issue came out and all of us on the staff took a good hard look at it, we were just amazed that we had a paper that big and the content in it. It was so much news and information. Really proud of that issue. So here's the deal. Listen to this that I've got coming up. Email your guesses to scenevault at yahoo.com and scenevault at yahoo.com 
only. It gets kind of confusing to find entries on email and Twitter and Facebook and direct message and all that kind of thing. So email your entries to seenball at yahoo.com. And if there's a tie, one will be chosen at random to receive the issue. So listen to this file that I've put together and see what you can come up with. A couple of guys made fun of me. Dale was one of them. And he said, what are you, some kind of pussy? What do you need that thing for? You can't see with that. You can't turn your head. I ate him by the damn uh, collar, and uh, then I saw Dad coming. Uh-oh. And Dad would whip all of us butts. Dale just, like, went nuts. I mean, he, like, he legitimately was afraid of that thing. There's one race in the NASCAR record book that has no winner, and I did win that race, and someday I will get credit for it. We came back in, I looked down inside there, and I could see probably four inches of the bone in his <gasps> forearm. I, I meant just to throw it at him and hit him like in the chest or the arm or something. Yeah. Well, I missed. I hit him right damn dead in the middle of the forehead. <laughs> and we ran from the front of the building all the way around to the back part of the, our shop, naked as jaybirds, except for our, our boots. He said, I'll give you $1,000. I need early caution. Polar moment of inertia. That's the center of where everything revolves. And I remember crossing down, looking up, and at this point, it's like a canopy of tracer rounds going overhead. We get up in the air, and Davey looks over at me and says, high five. One, two. You know, two guys from Alabama went up there and kicked everybody's butt. In high school, I couldn't get up in front of a group of three or four people. I was yeah. the shyest person probably in the classroom. But yes, I backed off and let Richard win the race because I was not going to put Osterlund on the winner's circle. You call the tower and you tell them that they better be in victory lane because I'm going to whip Harvick's fucking ass. Was it 30 years ago? I've been trying to get that shit back ever since, Rick, tell you the truth. But in that moment, all what? I wanted to do was hit that man in the face as many times as I could. When I won the race, I walked up to Bill Gardner and I poked him in the chest with my finger. And I said, I'm the son of a bitch who can't drive, remember? The flipping isn't bad. It's the hitting, the landing that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And I remember during those 10 or 11 flips, probably landed three or four times. Pulled my belt tight, and I'm watching, and all of a sudden, the fence is gone, and I'm seeing sky. Christmas rolls around. I'm, I'm really not feeling good. So I remember going to my mom and dad's house for Christmas, and I don't think I ever got out of the car. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all the way to the racetrack. And one of their crew members had me around the neck. One man had me around the waist. Really? And they hauled me out of there and threw me out of their pits. We are running fifth. You and the money. We are <laughs> We are taking this pool. We're talking on the radio about it. I could have backed off. <laughs> but that ain't racing. The biggest thing that I doubted was what I was feeling. Jack said to me one day, he thought my assometer was messed up. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. At the end of that race, I could literally see the bones on my right hand. It had just gone through the skin, through the meat, down to the bone. Here comes Richard Childers from behind me, not in a run, but in a rush. And he goes, it's right there, and points at something under the hood. He's walking down the thing there. Satan said, run over him. And all the spirits said, don't you dare. <laughs> We were not trying to show Bobby Allison up. What we were trying to do was to run the car to see what improvements we made that we could give to Bobby the next week. I woke up or I became conscious in the helicopter. And I have this memory of hearing the, the prop. 
I just think this sport is made up of a, a genuinely great group of characters. He said, let me tell you something, Larry. Well, I got it figured. I'm going to control the stern wheel, the gas pedal, and the clutch pedal. You can't afford to keep me. He told me one time everything he had was either bent, broke, burnt, or pregnant. So, listeners, email your list of who you think was talking just then to scenebalt at yahoo.com, and you might just come away with this amazing issue of Winston Cup Scene. Speaking of direct messages on Twitter, I received one last week from our friend Chris Wolf, who is one of our Patreon supporters, and he said, I was wondering whatever happened to the rest of the Jeff Hammond interview, because after starting off with one three-episode arc on the first part of Jeff's career back in episodes 128, 129, 130, I wanted to kind of come back to Jeff later and really save some of the good stuff and to not overload on Jeff Hammond and go six straight weeks or anything. So I wanted to kind of save it. And I decided that I would go ahead and run the final three episodes with Jeff. And wouldn't you know it, I was actually at my computer editing the Jeff Hammond interview when I got Chris's note asking about the Jeff Hammond interview. (laughs) (laughs) So Steve, are we in sync with our listeners or what? Whatever you got going for you, Rick, it seems to be working pretty well. We're right in tune with our folks. This week in this part of our conversation with Jeff, he talks about the influence of Warner Hodgden on Junior Johnson and Associates and how the addition of a second team for Neil Bonnet wasn't exactly the most harmonious of situations (laughs) (laughs) at all, period. (laughs) That pretty much says it all right there, Rick. Jeff also discusses Junior's reaction to the infamous 1986 clash between Daryl Waltrip and Dell Earnhardt at Richmond, the breakup between Daryl and Junior, and finally, Jeff takes us through some of the turmoil that caused him to leave Junior to rejoin Daryl at Hendrick Motorsports. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the May 17th, 1984 issue of Grand National Scene. And with the return of the Cup Series to Middle Tennessee and the Nashville area yesterday, and because of the interview with Jeff Hammond, I thought it would be absolutely appropriate to dig into this issue. And it features coverage of one of the most chaotic finishes to any race anywhere. The Coors 420 at the Fairgrounds Racetrack in Nashville. That was a real controversial race for a couple of reasons. Number one, the finish itself, which is was very controversial, and NASCAR's interpretation of its own rules, which created the chaos. And I think the fact that it was two teammates involved <laughs> just added fuel to the fire. To About the only one that was happy was Junior Johnson, because he didn't <laughs> care who was declared the winner, his team still won. <laughs> Steve, this week we have more beer rebate money from Paul Friedrich. 20 bucks. From two 36-can packs. Steve, I did not know that they made 36-can packs. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said the first time all this happened, I've never heard of beer rebate money at all. I know you. I think you might need to check into the beer rebate thing. (laughs) (laughs) Paul now drinks Miller Lite because it sponsored the two-car for so long. Paul is a prototypical NASCAR fan because he supports sponsors 
in the sport. He also drank Red Dog beer because they sponsored Kenny Wallace. <laughs> so, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. You make this podcast possible by doing that. And I truly, truly mean that from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate every single supporter out there. If you can do a monthly show of support, you can do that at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. The championship still pretty close in 83. Mm -hmm. At what point did Warner Hodgson come on board? End of 83. Okay. You know, uh, 84, you know, they uh, started putting together the the organization called Johnston Hodgson. How big a deal was that? Huge. Because it it really, um, Junior was all about results. Warner Hodgson was all about the, the show and the go. And from the buildings that he had built at uh, at the farm, Junior's original deal, he built, you know, parts rooms, extra garage stuff. He wanted a – Junior had a bridge that you could go across at one time uh, the other side of the pasture. And Warner said that wasn't good enough. So he comes out and basically – because, you know, he was into construction. So he basically put a DOT – certified bridge across and between the two properties the two uh 11 was on the original side i like to say and then the 12 was on the opposite side along where the parts house and the main office was moved to and in the process of of putting a bridge in warner wanted to make it look pretty like a mountain like you know, like where junior's place was up in north wilkesbury kind of like mountainish Junior told him, so you're not going to narrow that creek up. All you're going to do is make more flood problems for us, this, that, and the other. So what does Warner do? He has the creek dredged, widened, so where Junior can have the same size creek that was there originally. But then on the banks, he brought in big boulders and put in line those, that creek with those boulders that are still there today and put in a helicopter pad and everything like that. Just took it to a whole new level. I mean, everything was... Uh, uh, a lot more Hollywoodish type stuff, you know. The way the cars were painted, you know, we had double thunder. Our uniforms were um, really snazzy and you know, really first line type stuff. I mean, just the, the uh, both rigs, brand new Kentucky trailers, brand new Peterbilt trucks. You know, just big step up. You know, as far as the amount of money that we did a lot for the show part of it, not so much just the parts. A lot was a lot for the. Uh, having a number one first-class operation. With that, I think we got a little bit overwhelmed with all of that, and we're not as focused on getting the stuff organized and done right, trying to hire the right people for both organizations. And I think it became a, uh, a little bit more of a distraction for Junior because he has obviously a partner now. you got a partner that wants the 12 to win as much as we want the 11 to win, so – Made things a little difficult, and I think that hurt us in 84 as far as our effort for another championship. That was a time when two-car teams were not the norm. Exactly. What was it like, boots on the ground in Ingle Hollow, you'd been used to being the 
the only rooster in the hen house, so to speak, for so long. Everything was contentious. There was friction. And it didn't get any better, especially when we went to uh, Nashville and we ob- <laughs> obviously won the race. Yeah. And we didn't get to go to Victory Lane. I mean, we, it really, it really stressed us because of that race. And you, and we had another situation that came up at uh, Wilkesboro. Uh, Neil was doing his job. He was blocking Daryl, and Daryl wanted to move him, and Junior wouldn't let Daryl move him. Because, you know, Daryl looked at it like, and I think that's one of the things that probably helped lead to the eventual departure from up there was because all of a sudden Daryl couldn't be Daryl. I had to worry about a teammate because, I mean, we, we wound up not winning that race that day because he couldn't move him out of the way. How did you manage through all that? Because you were the crew chief. Mm-hmm. How did you try to keep things on an even keel in your shop? Under Trying to understand that you got to remember who you work for. Junior was a man. Junior did what he thought was right. We had a great sponsor in Budweiser. Um, I think here again, it's it's like had a little bit of a politician type feel to it, and trying to be politically correct. You know, you're working for Junior. You know, you don't need to create friction between him and and Warner. And at the same time. We were we were lucky, I think, in the way that, you know, of all the people that we had to choose for a, a driver for the second car, being Neil Bonnet. Neil's a good guy. Oh, yeah. He's a really good guy. And, you know, you, if you're having an off day, you want him to be the on day. Okay? And you can't get mad at Neil for not giving way to Daryl and not being as good as Daryl. I mean, Daryl was, was especially at a place like Wilkesburg, and you get him hooked up. I mean, he's hard. he's hard to handle. And as you saw at Richmond, whenever that one time, you know, him and Earnhardt were racing so hard, it was almost the same scenario. Daryl needed to give him a little help to get under him, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and that, that's something that uh, Junior said, don't let you hit that car. And, and oh, dang it, Junior, he's holding me up. I own both of you. So just sit there, just do what you got to do. And that, 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 again, Junior can't lose as long as we don't wreck each other. You know what I'm saying? I didn't like the end of it, but that's just the way it had to be that day. And you learn how to swallow hard. Because raising cane about it ain't going to fix it. It ain't going to fix it. I can't change it, and neither can Daryl. You know, next time we got to be better getting off pit road and get in front of the guy and then run away from him. So you have the dynamic of having Neil as a teammate, and that isn't exactly a popular move. Then in 1985 – you win three races, which is okay for more, most mere mortals, but after winning 22 in two years, mm-hmm. it's a letdown. But you come back and you win the championship. How did you win that championship? Going back to Junior's golden rule, finish every race you start. And that was one of the things that we were able to do. We, did, we were up against aerodynamics for the first time. I think it was so glaring. We, we'd seen it some, but this time it was just unbelievably one-sided. But NASCAR will tell you that if you have a problem with what's going on with another manufacturer, then switch manufacturers. They put it on you. It wasn't, it wasn't their job to 
referee a manufacturer's desire what they want to call their race car. And in that time, we were running that notchback Chevrolet against those, what I call a football T-Bird. And, I mean, those things drove themselves because of the way their aerodynamics were. You know, and, and NASCAR wasn't into going to the wind tunnel to measure that kind of stuff and be the referee about, oh, well, we need to give the Monte Carlo a little bit more here and take a little bit away from the foot, from the Ford guys. You know, they would do some of that, but not to the degree that they do today. Yeah. I mean, they, they take cars and deliberately match them up engine-wise, the whole nine yards. I mean, they, they are all about having a level playing ground. And back then we didn't. So you were stuck with whatever because you'd make choices during the off-season what you wanted to race. You want to run a Buick, you want to run a Chevrolet, you want to run a Pontiac, whatever General Motors had offered up, you could choose between those three. This is what Ford is offering up. This is what Dodge is offering. We even at one time looked at running a Dodge. We, we built one, took it to Daytona, couldn't get out of our own way. And Bill France said, Bill France Jr. said, whatever you got to do to that thing, cut on it and try to make it run. And we whittled and cut on everything like we could, and we could not make it go. The old Murata, and we actually came back, and all the sheet metal we had gotten from Dodge trying to get it to go, we gave it to Buddy Arrington. Just couldn't, couldn't make it happen. So, you know, the times were totally different. Times were totally different. And going back to what you're saying about winning the three races, we couldn't outrun Bill Elliott. It was just, it was just, he was good that year. And Bill still had not overcome some mechanical problems that they found themselves in. And I think we got later in the year, you couldn't kind of like, can't believe they guys won't go away. They just won't go away. So, you know, we won the Winston. We won the 600 the same weekend, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. And that gave us some motivation at the early May to keep digging, keep doing what we had to do. And by the time we got to Rockingham in the fall and won that race there, it's like we had them looking, they jumping at shadows at that time because they were this, we wouldn't go away. We kept nipping at their lead and had gotten within striking distance. And they, they made some mechanical, had some mechanical errors that took them out and gave us an opportunity to win championship. Now, speaking of the Winston. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I already know what the question is. <laughs> the answer is no. Okay, all right. <laughs> Enough said. Enough said. Darrell Waltrip, Dell Earnhardt, and the Spring Richmond race in 1986. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it just a few minutes ago. What do you remember about that day? Uh, it was, um, you know, Richmond always, again, it had been a pretty good racetrack for us as far as Junior Johnson was concerned. And, uh, and Daryl, like I say, we get everything hooked up. We were, once again, hard to handle. And Earnhardt and his bunch had gotten off the pit road quicker than we did. And he'd run well that day. But late in the race, we'd made some adjustments. And Daryl clearly could get around him. And it was, you know, just saving his stuff. And this is one of the times, if anybody remember pictures of Junior Johnson, most of the time he's standing there with his foot on a, on pit wall looking toward turn four. And sometimes with a set of stopwatches and sometimes not. But that particular day, I guess he was comfortable with what was going on in the pits and he didn't feel like he needed to have to be there all the time. You know, to clear it, to get something clear with me, he needed to proceed. So he'd gotten down and went and got on the back of a wrecker 
and we could see around the racetrack. I asked her, I said, you see everything? He said, yeah, I see everything. Okay. So he's back there watching the race, and we're, I'm watching and, you know, trying to coach Daryl and give him lap times. You know, okay, we got so many laps to go, so many laps to go, so many laps to go. So getting a little bit tight here, bud. And Junior finally came on the radio. He said, Daryl, stop letting him block you like that. Pass him. Pass him now. That was what he told Daryl. I said, pass him. And I said, pass him now. And Daryl went down the back straight away. Tried him and going into three. Couldn't quite did it. Got off him a little bit. Got a really good run down the front straight away. And this time, Earnhardt didn't have the momentum. He he checked just that little bit. I think try to keep the car under him. And we did. He slid up just a hair. Daryl got got inside of him going into one. Well, middle of two, he gets back, gets back in the gas. And he's totally up alongside of him. And then once they exited two, he starts to pull away from him going down the back straightaway. Well, he gets to the back down to the turn three. And I think Daryl was pretty happy just to kind of like, I'm just going to let him stay on the outside of me. I mean, he can't get under me right there. And all of a sudden, he just, he cuts dead left. And her heart turns us right in the outside wall. I don't know what else to think, but, it, you know, he wrecked him. And there went our day. I mean, Earnhardt went out. You know, I think Joe Rutman got into it. You know, Kyle Petty winds up winning a race. And from Junior's vantage point, he sees us trying to, you know, limp, limp around there and get back cross start finish line, finish the race. And one of the very few times in my career, I remember Junior saying distinctly, Jeff, take some boys and go take care of your driver. Because he, I think he thought, you know, Daryl was getting ready to get in a fight. Because when he when he got a shot at Earnhardt, he slammed him back pretty good, and the thing just wouldn't go anymore. He'd probably hit him again. So that that right there was probably one of the worst days in my career, and I know it probably was to a certain degree with with Dale Earnhardt. And, and here's the reason why. When he tried it, because Dale and I were friends, but I knew when he told me, I didn't mean to wreck him. I knew he lied. Okay? I mean, you, you've heard him do it yeah. at Bristol a couple times. But that day was just strictly the fact that he didn't like it. Daryl had got under him and beat him up off the corner and was going to win that race. And it's kind of like, he's not going to win that race. I'm going to win that race. or, I, or he's, Neither one of us are going to win the race. He don't misjudge something like that. Dell is too good to misjudge something like that. I mean, you could have run in the back of us and, and missed it a little bit, but he hit him hard enough that it was no doubt that he was going to turn him up in that wall. And I told him so. And from that point on, Dell and I never did really get along good. Well, I mean, I just I didn't understand the need for it. You know, why you and plus turn around and lie to me. You just I could have took it. Well, I gave him what I thought he needed. Be done with it. But more importantly, I think, was the fact that he tried to go tell Junior the same stuff. <laughs> and Junior, Tom said, just get out of my face. And don't you ever come around me. Just stay away from me. I mean, he 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 PO'd the, the big man. He really did. He did PO him off of me because that was, you know. And Junior was in a position, he saw it all. He saw it. And, and. That was a big, big tear right there between their, their relationships. Well, speaking of taking off the big man, DW gets an offer from Rick Hendrick mm -hmm. fairly early that year. 
How did you find out that he was thinking about leaving? He came to me and wanted me to go with him. Right off the bat? Yeah. Okay. But it came with an, oh, by the way, uh, you're not going to be the crew chief. Waddell Wilson's going to be crew chief, and you'll, you know, you take care of the car, and he'll take care of the engines, but he's going to be the crew chief. Waddell and I had not gotten along since the early 80s. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, just we we run for a championship, you know, yeah. with Allison and everything, and um, you know, what uh, Waddell can be a little bit on the uh, obstinate side and opinionated and everything like that. But I, like I say, I just didn't really like the way uh, the way our relationship was. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not I'm not trying to say that I'm an easy guy to get along with, but I I just didn't really like the way he said some things and attitude he had towards. So. I just uh, I didn't see that being a good move for me, and I told Daryl I said, "Not interested. I'm staying here." Here again, when Daryl made that announcement, Junior started looking for a replacement driver right then, and I think if Terry hadn't been you know under contract, we would have probably swapped drivers right right at the middle or toward the end of the year before anything else. And here again. We had still had a shot of having a decent year and probably maybe you know winning a championship. And Daryl wouldn't—I mean, not Daryl, but Junior wouldn't interest in helping Daryl take that championship and go to Rick Hendrick. So it it ended the way it ended, you know, and was uh, not what you would call uh, good. I mean, you probably got some of the quotes that Junior had about you know the mule and everything yeah, like yeah. that. So. Um, I don't know, it hurt, hurt everybody's feelings because we felt like, you know, that we had given him everything he wanted and needed while he was there, and he was just running off to get the money. But, you know, Rick did something that has a tendency to get everybody's attention, guarantees. You know, he guaranteed him to earn a million dollars, and and uh, at that time, that was unheard of for a driver. You mentioned the fact that late in the season, Darrell was still – in contention, the team was still in contention. You're creeping up a little bit on Dale for the mm-hmm. championship. And according to Daryl, he said that he had heard that Junior basically had the team lay down in Atlanta so he wouldn't win the championship. No, we did we were not Junior never told anybody to do anything but race. That's it. I mean that's just I think the the Somebody crying over spilt milk because things didn't go quite right, and we didn't lay down. We didn't lay down. I mean, the thing, if anybody wants to be honest with themselves, whenever you stop doing what you had been doing with a group, the whole group feels like you don't care about them. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. When you go to a racetrack and every time you turn around – where Daryl and Stevie, sometimes we were going to dinner together as a team or doing something like that. All of a sudden, Waddell and him are the two going out and doing things. That that hurts you. And and at the same time, when he had opportunities to go talk to Waddell at the racetrack and that's going on, that hurts you. Yeah. So some of the energy may not have been there, but it's self-induced. But nobody was given orders to quit. You don't quit. If you're a racer, you don't you don't you don't quit the checkered flag drops. So Daryl does wind up leaving 
but the dream team isn't exactly clicking for whatever reasons. How and when did he contact you or did you contact him to make the move yourself? Um, interestingly enough, it was back when we still weren't overwhelmed as far as with races at that time and they had uh, like a weekend off. It was prior to going to um, Riverside and it's like we went to Pocono and I was I had gotten a call uh, earlier in that week that you know Daryl wanted to talk to me. I thought we were going to get a chance to talk at Pocono, but we, it didn't happen. So long story short, working with Terry Labonte, and we got up there and we made some changes in the car, but we won. We sat on the pole that day and blew up early in the race. And I remember flying back on our team plane. I was sitting back in the back right there, and I was talking to uh, Shorty Edwards. Shorty Edwards has been around for a long time. Great guy. But I looked at Shorty. I said, Shorty, I said, uh, just going to let you know, I'm probably going to go in on Monday, and uh, I'm going to be leaving. Why are you, you going to do that? I said, well, I, just, I, probably, I think I need to because me and Tim Brewer, we got rid of the two teams, and we only had the 11, and he and I were kind of like sharing crew chief responsibilities. Wasn't really you know, getting along like we needed to. and um, It was confusing for Terry. It was confusing for, I think, everybody involved. I, I, and I had this opportunity. And how the opportunity came about was Daryl called me and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm not doing anything. Why? He said, I need your help. So I want you to come join me over here. I said, Daryl, we haven't been down that road. I'm not going anywhere. He said, Well, are you not happy over there right now? I said, No, I'm not happy. But I'm not. Don told you, I'm not coming over there to work for what for what else? It's not going to happen. He said, No, 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 no. He said, He and I ain't seeing eye to eye, and I need somebody I can talk to. Well, I thought you saw. He said he was so great. <laughs> he said, Well, it ain't turned out to be like we wanted to. <laughs> All right, so. Long story short, he says, I've got it worked out. You're going to come be the crew chief. He's going to want being team manager, but he doesn't tell you anything to do and take care of the engines. Are we clear on that? I said, so I'm the crew chief and the car is mine. I just I do what I need to do. Yep. That's an easy come in here and help me get what, I, get what I need so I can go race. He said, you need to call Jimmy Johnson. If you remember... Rick had a Jimmy Johnson before there was a Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. He said, call Jimmy Johnson at this number and go sit down and talk to him. And if you don't like what he's got to say, you call me back before you say no. Okay? And I did. Went down and met with Jimmy Johnson, and he showed me around and told me, you know, the general overview of what was going to happen. So I made the decision to go in on that Monday after Pocono and tell Junior that I was going to be leaving him. And I knew that this time, because I, I, I was going to leave Junior one time before when Travis Carter went and started the Skull Bandit. And I was going to go with Travis. I enjoyed working with him. And Junior told me he thought that was a bad idea, which, again, Junior's got crystal ball. He's smarter than I am. So I, I stuck with him and wound up being his crew chief for, the, for quite a while. But I knew if I went there and told him that again, it, it, it wouldn't. He wouldn't try to talk me out of it. I mean, I kind of knew what the circumstances were. So I actually got there at 5 o'clock that morning and loaded everything I needed to load up belonged to me. Did you really? Yeah, I did. 
I knew I knew that when I whenever I told him it was time to leave, I wasn't going to be coming back and forth or nothing like that. I got brought me a trailer up there and started loading everything in my toolbox and all my information and anything I had up there that didn't belong to me. Uh, so I got everything loaded up. And Junior come off the hill about eight o'clock and I saw him go to the office across the creek and I rode over there, pulled the truck over behind the office and um, went in and told him thank you. Couldn't, couldn't say enough about what he had offered me, what he had given me, and what, you know, but I told him I said, I wasn't happy right now. I said, not your fault. I said, it's just circumstances. And he said, yep. He said, you going back to work with Daryl? I said, well, cease this. go see if you can straighten him out. And uh, the, thing, the thing about leaving, no harsh words, no point fingers about how sorry I was for leaving right now and all this other kind of stuff. Again, the the the, the friction between he with between me and, and Tim Brewer at the time was apparent enough that, you know, it was gonna be better for the eleven team and better for me to go somewhere else. So I was that I guess you might say not say that I wouldn't want it there, but we were we were always going to be have internal stuff. And uh but I, I left there and moved in at uh, Hendrick Motorsports. So Warner Hodgson buys an interest in Junior Johnson and Associates. And from the outside looking in, they would appear to have been just about as different as it is possible to be. I mean, we all know Junior's story and the good old country boy that he was. And here comes Warner Hodgson from California, a businessman's businessman. And he seemed to be buying up everything. Steve, how big of a surprise was it to people in the garage at the time that Junior and Warner were teaming up? Well, actually, everybody was a bit surprised because we figured if there's anybody who wouldn't want a partner, it would be Junior. But Junior explained that Warner brought the money he thought he needed to maintain a two-car team. He said it was like getting extra sponsorship, and sponsorship was not all that easy to get back then. Now, I thought Hodgson was a little bit overextended. He owned half of Rockingham, half of Bristol, half of North Wilkesboro, half of Richmond, and he sponsored both the races at Rockingham. And now he's going to buy into Junior's team as well. That's an awful lot of money to be spreading around. I don't think that there's any doubt whatsoever in my mind that Warner did overextend himself. When you've got your fingers in so many different pies, something's got to break at some point. And I think that's what happened to him. Now, I will say this. I think personally, and I never met Warner Hodge, never talked to him, but from what I've read and what I think I understand about him. I think his motives were pure. I think he just genuinely had an interest in the sport, but he overextended himself and got into too many different things and the money kind of dried up. I think what people need to know about Warner Hodgson is at least when it comes to his dealings with this team is that he seemed to really bring a little something extra to the operation. He put in a new bridge between two shops there in Inglehalla. And this sucker was DOT approved and it could handle the haulers driving back and forth over it. 
Warner took care of landscaping around the place. And when Junior said that all that landscaping was going to mess his creek up, Warner came in, he widened the creek. (laughs) (laughs) And according to Jeff, Warner put in a helicopter pad in (laughs) Inglehalla. I know our listeners probably aren't familiar with where Ingle Hollow is, but to this day, Ingle Hollow, North Carolina is still out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but everything that Hodgson did right there indicates that that money was put to good use and did benefit the team. With all that being said, however, the other side of the coin is that Jeff said that the team became a little too focused on the show instead of the go. And if you understand racing, you understand what that means. They maybe put a little too much emphasis on the bells and the whistles as opposed to the nuts and bolts of the race car. What Jeff said was a distinct possibility because it looks like Hodgson initially spent his money on things that were not technical and not racing related. Did you ever talk to Junior about his relationship with Warner and how much of a distraction all that stuff was? Well, Junior never really considered it much of a distraction. He said his relationship with Hodgson was a good one, and he thought that that certainly contributed to the success of operating a two-car team. That's where Junior was most interested in doing. He needed the money to operate that two-car team, and he didn't really care where where it came from. He looked at Warner Hodgson as not only a partner, but another sponsor. And he was fine with Hodgson as long as the money kept coming in. I don't know that I would consider this a final blow in the relationship between the two teams, but Neil Bonnet was coming on board as a teammate in 1984. And Steve, you and I both knew Neil, of course. And there was certainly nothing wrong with Neil as a person. I mean, I think you'd actually have to work at not liking Neil Bonnet. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you hundred percent, but we've said it many times here on the show, but back in that era that we tend to talk about the most, the 1970s and the 1980s and the nineties, two car teams just weren't a thing early on in those years. And so with a driver like Daryl Waltrip already there and him being used to being the only rooster in the hen house, he's more than likely not going to be happy having company. Well, Junior actually sat down with Daryl knowing that he was upset. And he said to Daryl, I promise you this, you will never have anything less than top flight equipment and everything you need to win races. I can promise you that. And later on, when the two-car team idea went away and Junior had back to one-car team, he said, I gave Daryl everything he wanted. I kept my promise. There were at least a couple of incidents that really kind of heated up the controversy. The first of those was the spring race at Nashville in 1984. And we're going to talk more about the race itself in our second segment. But Neil Bonnet passed Daryl after. (laughs) Let's emphasize that phrase. After taking the yellow flag that ended the race under caution. (laughs) After taking the yellow. (laughs) Do you sense that something is very strange there? <laughs> Neil went to victory lane and Daryl was not happy about it. DW was eventually awarded the victory, but the damage was pretty much done. Then at North Wilkesboro, where running well was imperative to Junior Johnson drivers, Neil was holding Daryl up and Daryl couldn't move him because Neil was a teammate. And from what Jeff said, 
it cost Darrell the victory at North Wilkesboro in a Junior Johnson car. <laughs> and don't you know that Darrell was very unhappy after that because this teammate philosophy certainly didn't sit well with him and he could have won a race. Here's one that I didn't know. The team had actually built a Dodge Murata and they shook it down but wound up ditching it because they couldn't get it up to speed. And Jeff didn't specify when that was. And so I texted him and he texted me back and he said it was during the 1980 off season going into the 81 season. So that would have been when NASCAR was moving away from the really big wheelbase cars to the smaller car in 1981. So they actually tried to build a Dodge Murata and see what they could do with it. And they couldn't get it up to speed. Yeah, they were experimenting just like a lot of other teams were with what they call reduced wheelbase cars. I think it was about a 110-inch wheelbase at the time. And uh, to be honest with you, Dodge Murata wasn't your leading candidate at that time. (laughs) They evidently got some stuff from Dodge to make this happen. And when they couldn't make a go of it, they wound up giving everything to Buddy Arrington, who to this day remains a Dodge guy. That's right. And Buddy ran pretty well. 80, 81, 82. I think one time there, he finished in the top 10 in points. Jeff brought up (laughs) the 1985 edition of the Winston. And so when he brought it up, I had to ask. Oh, really? Yes, (laughs) I did. And when I started to ask it, Jeff said, I already know what you're going to ask. And the answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, that day I was at that shop for five hours and we talked on the record for three of those hours. That's the only thing that Jeff Hammond did not elaborate on. He said, I know what you're going to ask. The answer is no. Boom. End of discussion. (laughs) I smell that. How about you? (laughs) I don't know. I think there might've been more answer in his silence than there would have been in him talking. Let's just say that the finish of the 1985, the Winston remains in doubt, (laughs) (laughs) at least when it comes to me, we have talked about the 1986 spring race at Richmond from several different perspectives, but despite that, here's one more angle that sheds even more light on that day. Junior Johnson was watching that race from the back of a wrecker. So he actually sees what happened. When Dale and Daryl wrecked in turn three, he climbs down off the holler. He goes up to Jeff and he says, get you some boys together and y'all go take care of your driver. In my mind, I'm thinking it's going to be like the Earps and Doc Holliday <laughs> going to have it out with the Clantons and the McClory's and Billy Claiborne at the OK Corral in Tombstone. Up in the ante even more, Jeff called this one of the worst days of his career because if listeners will remember from the first half of this interview that we posted a few months ago, Jeff was friends with Dale that had their big Bristol adventure going to lunch. And Jeff had even gone so far as to kind of politic a little bit to try to get Dale in the car when Kel left. But this happened and Dale said that he hadn't meant to wreck Daryl. And Jeff said, I knew he lied. So that evidently went pretty doggone deep with Jeff and junior when that happened. Well, especially with Jeff, because he was friends with Dale. And when you see a friend of yours take out your driver and then not tell the truth about it, 
I mean, it's, it's gotta be a blow to you for sure. It's one thing to tick Jeff Hammond off, but if you make junior Johnson mad, then you've got some splaining to do (laughs) (laughs) or else he was pretty much done with you from everything that you and I have both been told everything that you and I both know from being around him for all those years, you don't make junior Johnson mad and not have a pretty doggone good excuse. You know, when Junior was mad at you, you had a chance to make up for it. He was always up for that if you wanted to do it. And if you tried to make up for it and he uh, believed you, then things were just fine. I mean, you weren't going to go to dinner with him, (laughs) but things would be just fine. But if you tried to make it up to him and he didn't like your explanation, there was no turning back for Junior. Daryl got the offer to go drive for Rick Hendrick, and we talked to him about the reaction that he received from Junior and the team back in episode 93. In 86, our cars were just not that good. Uh, we struggled in 85. We only won three races, but I did. I was, a, I was consistent, and I won the championship. I beat Bill. 86, the cars were just – they were slow. And, and Junior had convinced himself and most of the guys on the team that it was me that I wasn't pushing the button, that I wasn't driving hard anymore, that I'd gotten hurt a few times, I was scared, blah, 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 blah. I'll never forget, we were at Wilkesboro, and I was racing Jeff O'Dine, and uh, I was trying to pass him. And I came on the radio, and I said, Hammond was a crew. I said, Hammond, go down there and tell that bunch of knuckleheads that if he doesn't get out of my way, I'm putting him in the fence. And Junior came on the radio, and he said, boy, you wouldn't put a piss in in the fence. <laughs> And I mean, just just wow. like that. Yeah. And uh, that that kind of that whole that eighty six year was just that way the whole year. And of course, the good thing was for me, Rick Hendrick was kind of had taken up the reins at Chevrolet. They were he was getting a lot of help from Chevrolet, and Junior didn't like that. And Herb Fishel and Junior had fallen out, and Junior was having a lot of problems. Things weren't going well at the shop. Warner Hodgson and two cars, and it was just. Things just got all upside down and got to be a mess. Fortunately for me, Rick Hendrick wanted to hire me. I'll never forget. I went in. I told Junior, I didn't want to leave. Or, uh, even as bad as things could have been or might have been, I didn't want to leave. I loved it there. I was, it was home. And I'd had so much success there. And Junior was in his office one day. And I walk in. He's got some glasses on. He's like, yeah, that's it. Uh, Junior, I said, uh, got a minute? What do you want, boy? I said, uh, I got a call from uh, – Rick Hendrick, well, Junior didn't like Rick Hendrick. I got a call from Rick Hendrick, and he said he had a deal that I might be interested in, and uh, he wanted to, wanted to hire me and said he'd pay me 500000 salary a year. And he got dead quiet. And I said, so what do you think? And he looked at me, and he said, boy, you need to go take that deal. And that was the end of our relationship. Hmm. That was in, like uh, – May, June, maybe July. Was it really that early? Oh, yeah. And uh, what was funny was I, I just was telling him. I'd gone to work there, and I'll never forget when I signed a contract with Junior, paid me 50% of what I won and a salary of $150,000. That was my salary. And uh, so I, I never asked for a raise. Junior always said, I can't pay you a lot of money, but you're, you're going to win a lot of money. So it's really up to you how, you know, how much money you make. And so I thought, well, it's, I've been here six years. I time I should maybe get a little raise. Anyway, I thought Junior would come back and say, oh, I can't do that, but I can do this. 
but he didn't. Uh, I think it was Rick, and it was just the timing of everything, and it just it just didn't turn out well. And I'll never forget, this is four cell phones. So I walk out of his office and say, oh, crap. Man, I got to call Rick. <laughs> I got to get him on the phone right away and tell him, uh, I Junior, can it. I borrow I your phone? So, but nobody knows this conversation, but Junior knows. So a couple of weeks go by, and I'm I'm go up to the shop. We're getting a car ready to go somewhere. I don't remember where. And Hammond and all the boys are working on the car, and I'm going to get get my seat fitted and all the pedals and everything. So I'm sitting in the car, and they all come around the car, the whole team, and they said, "Why didn't you tell us? Wow. Why didn't I tell you what? Why didn't you tell us you were leaving?" I said. I'm leaving. Uh, uh, well, I didn't tell you because I didn't know it. Yeah, Junior said that you came in the other day and said that uh, you were going to work, go to work for Rick Hendrick, and uh, that this was your last year. And man, that floored me because I hadn't said anything. Nobody had said anything. Rick hadn't said anything because I thought Rick, I hadn't got things worked out yet, and I don't know for sure, but maybe I can do your deal. I, I'll, I'll let you know. So anyway, I heard something the other day. And I'll never know. Maybe somebody someday will tell me that the reason we went to the last race, uh, next to last race, I think it was at Atlanta, and we had a shot at winning a championship. We were racing Dale in '86, and uh, somebody told me that that know knew Junior really, really well. That Junior went in the shop before we went to Atlanta and told the guys, "Do y'all really want him to win the championship when he's leaving here next year?" You want to help him win the championship and he won't even be here. And they all looked at Junior like, what are you talking about? And Junior said, I'll tell you what we're going to do, boys. We're going to go up to the uh, house up in the mountains. We're going to pick up sticks. And y'all let that car set. And uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I never heard that before. It floored me because I never thought about Junior being that way. But I did hear that from some reliable source. And uh, I've never really checked with anybody to see if it's true or not. I don't really know if I want to know if it's true or not. But uh, that was kind of the way Junior was. I'll never forget. One of his best friends kicked him off. And I said, Junior, went in one day and said, Junior, whatever happened to Ron? Ron who? Your buddy Ron. He was here. He said he died. What? What happened? He died. I don't know what happened to him. He ain't around. I didn't I haven't seen him. He died. He's gone. The guy hadn't died. He just died to junior. Wow. Okay. That's the way kind of operated. Daryl tried right off the bat to get Jeff to go with him, but Waddell Wilson is already lined up to be crew chief. So Jeff would have essentially been taking a step backward if he'd made that move at that point. But not only that, Jeff said that he and Waddell hadn't exactly gotten along. Since the early 1980s, he said that Waddell could be a little on the obstinate side. <laughs> well, hello, pot calling the kettle black. <laughs> that was part of the story, but the rest of the story is exactly what Daryl was describing in that clip. Jeff and the rest of Junior's team were not happy with Daryl leaving, but according to Jeff, Rick Hendrick guaranteed Daryl a million dollars a year. And that was pretty much unheard of at that time. I don't know for sure what an average driver's salary was back then, but I can tell you that it was not a million dollars a year guaranteed. Absolutely not. Most drivers got a salary of, of six figures. 
okay, and a cut of the winnings. Some drivers didn't even get a salary. They got only a percentage of the winnings and perhaps some expenses here and there. And, of course, they got personal appearance money from the sponsors. But a million dollars a year, guaranteed, no. Something that Jeff mentioned, just the optics of it probably weren't the best the way that it looked. But there Daryl was driving for Junior, and he's talking to Waddell at the racetrack, and he and Stevie are going out to eat with Waddell away from the racetrack. And he's still driving for Junior Johnson. If I'm on Junior's crew and I'm seeing that, then I'm wondering to myself, why should I go all out to help this guy win now? Because he's already moved on to next year. He's just running out the string here. And I think that goes for any lame duck situation, not just Daryl. I was going to say the same thing. That's happened many, many times with teams who have a driver who's simply running out the string and they know he won't be there next year. Daryl made the move in 1987 and Jeff and Tim Brewer are basically sharing crew chief responsibilities. Terry Labonte is now driving for junior and the first half of the season, Steve, they were actually doing pretty doggone good. They had top 10 finishes in nine of the first 12 races including five top five finishes, but they weren't winning. And Jeff and Tim were kind of button heads. But after sitting on the pole at Pocono, Terry fell out early with a faulty oil pump. And Jeff tells Shorty Edwards, one of the other crewmen on the team plane coming back from Pocono, I think I'm out of here. And Jeff had already tried to leave Junior once. And again, it's another one of those connections between our episodes. He was going to go with Travis Carter when Travis left to go start the Skull Bandit team. Junior talked him out of leaving at that point, but Jeff also knew that it was basically going to be two strikes and you're out. If you keep wanting to leave for another team, then just go do it. Junior wasn't going to try to talk him out of it this time. And so at five o'clock the next Monday morning after Pocono, Jeff is at the shop to move his stuff out. And he sees Junior about eight that morning. They have their conversation, and Jeff is on his way to Hendrick Motorsports, just like that. I think Jeff's situation was pretty precarious in the fact that he shared crew chief duties with Tim Brewer. Now, I don't think sharing crew chief duties is a good way to go. You're always going to find guys butting their heads because they have different ideas as to what will work in the car, and one of them has to get their way. And the question is, which one of them is it going to be? So you have this frustration and disagreement going on. I've seen that more than once, and we all know about it happened more than once. So it's pretty tough on Jeff. Well, I can imagine it would be an awkward situation between Jeff and Tim, but then just imagine Terry Labonte's position. He's brand new to the race team. Who does he listen to? Does he listen to Tim? Does he listen to Jeff? But then you also have a third party involved and it's junior Johnson. Right. (laughs) So do you listen to Tim? Do you listen to Jeff or do you listen to junior? And you have a very difficult situation with that right there, but it's made even more difficult because they're not winning races. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. 
I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The May 17th, 1984 issue of Grand National Scene, there is chaos. And then there's chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and then there is what happened at the end of the course 420 at the Fairgrounds Racetrack in Nashville in May of 1984. And what was crazy about it, the race up until that point had been relatively tame for a Nashville event. Only six drivers fell out of the race for whatever reason. So everybody had kind of minded their P's and Q's up until that point. Neil Bonnet took the lead from Daryl Waltrip on lap 377, and he kept it until Jeff Bodine got by him for the top spot on lap 410. But then a couple of laps later, Neil cut down a tire and he spun coming off turn two and down the backstretch. Neil and Jeff pitted under caution while Daryl, Richard Petty, and Rusty Wallace stayed on the track. When the green flag came out with four laps to go, Daryl was leading, Richard was second, Rusty was third, Neil was fourth, and Jeff was fifth. Neil shot by Richard Petty, and he shot by Rusty Wallace. And on the next to last lap, Kyle Petty, Bobby Allison, and Rusty all got together and wrecked on the backstretch. And the white and yellow flags waved with Daryl as the leader and Neil in second place. There was absolutely no controversy about that whatsoever. Daryl was the leader. Wow. Neil was second when they came around and they took the white and yellow flags together. Bobby Allison is backing his car down the backstretch. And Steve, he is on fire while he's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Coming off turn four on the last lap, Neil is still hammered down. He gets to Daryl's outside. And he beats Daryl to the checkered flag by about half a car length on the outside. And to make things even more crazy, Richard Petty wrecks coming off turn four after Neil and Daryl, or Daryl and Neil, whichever the case might have been, had taken the checkered flag. And finally, Kyle Petty crashed trying to miss his daddy sitting across the racetrack coming off turn four. So much for the P's and Q's of that race. <laughs> <laughs> An official in the press box initially called Daryl the winner. And then the scoreboard showed Neil with the win. And then Daryl's number 11 went to the top of the scoreboard. Then Neil Bonnet's number 12 went to the top. Both drivers headed to Victor Lane and Neil was given the trophy. <laughs> <laughs> You and I have both been in the midst of such craziness where it seems like a thousand things are happening at once and you literally don't know which way to turn next. What is the best way to operate in a case like that? You got to sit and wait until an official makes it official until you're told by NASCAR, this is the way the finish was and we are going to keep it that way. No more questions. That's about all you can do, Rick. 
and it's maddening. Well, as you can imagine, Daryl was not exactly, oh, okay. All right. Well, that's just the way it is. That was not the Daryl Walter fat knot by any stretch of the imagination. He was absolutely livid. He said in Gary McCready's race lead, yeah, it's the cadet division. And that's where Bill Gazaway ought to be. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Bill Gazaway was essentially the cup director at the time. Right. I know what is right. The yellow flag was out. There is no racing back to the flag. The race is over. I know who won the race. I did. The white and the yellow came out with a lap to go. And you don't have to race back to the line because we had already taken the yellow. When the yellow comes out, the race was over. I couldn't see. I didn't know Neil was beside me. It was a hell of a wreck back there. The race is ludicrous. NASCAR is trying to kill somebody. (laughs) Those are very strong words, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's Daryl Waltrip. (laughs) Yeah. Later in a sidebar, Daryl added, I've been the victim of some bad calls over the last six months of racing. I'm not a crybaby, and I don't feel NASCAR is out to get me but I don't think it is out to help me either. I don't want to be given anything. Just don't take anything away from me. I can understand where Daryl is coming from. He took the white flag and the yellow flag. The last lap was under caution and you cannot race under caution. That's the key. The yellow and the white were out together. Now that signals the end of the race because you have to run that last lap under caution speed. Junior, as you can imagine, was in a pretty precarious position here. He's got two drivers involved in the same incident, but Junior Johnson, he didn't even try to be politically correct. Junior said, from all the racing I've done and seen, Daryl Waltrip won the race. Daryl was leading under the caution, and you can't pass under the caution. I'd like to see Neil win a race, but not if he wins like this. I don't want it. As I said earlier, Junior couldn't get too upset because either way, one of his drivers was going to win the race and bring home the lion's share of the money. But he's correct in saying what he said because he was right. He was right. Daryl did win the race and he had to speak up for him. Neil drove the race with a broken wrist. And as far as all the controversy went, you can just imagine what his reaction was. Neil was just Neil. Neil was just going to take it as it came. He said, I couldn't dispute whatever they said. If they said Waltrip won the race, all I know is I was racing back to the flag. The checkered had not come out yet. We have been getting a lot of heat. People kept asking, why aren't you winning? I knew when I did my job, we would finally win one. And tonight I did my job. That tells me that Neil was very intent on winning a race because there was criticism that he could not win a race with junior. He wasn't doing his job. Now, there wasn't much of that, but it was out there. So Neil was out to try to prove a point. It took two days for NASCAR to determine that Daryl had indeed won the race. And here's what Dick Beatty had to say in a sidebar. We misinterpreted the rule at the conclusion of the race and failed to incorporate the intent of the yellow flag rule. We are currently reviewing the rules covering this type of situation in an attempt to better clarify the intent. We are going to do everything in our power to maintain our reputation as the safest form of motorsports. I think everything boiled down to this. The rule stated that if the caution came out during the white flag lap, 
they could race back to the checkered, which was the rule at the time. If somebody wrecked or something happened on the racetrack, if there was debris or something, and the yellow flag came out during the white flag lap, then yes, they could race back to the checkered. But Daryl and Jr. contended that the yellow and white flags had come out at the same time, which it did. I mean, there wasn't any debate about that. Right. So the last lap was under caution and nobody could pass. And I well, agree with great. them. That was absolutely the case. Yes, that is the case. And that's where the rule got misinterpreted about when the yellow flag came out. If it had come out after the white flag was taken, those guys would have been able to race around to the caution, but it didn't. They came out together, which means the last lap of the race had to be run under caution and nobody could pass. It's pretty clear, but I think the misinterpretation of the rule by NASCAR at that time caused this problem. Well, it opened up a can of worms. Gene Granger was all over this controversy, and he quoted an anonymous driver as saying, Neil Bonnet won the race under NASCAR rules. The reason I don't want you to reveal my name is that I may use NASCAR's rules <laughs> to win a race for me down the road. Just ask yourself one question. Who took the caution flag first? Daryl. According to the rules, NASCAR's rules, it's then a race back to the checkered flag. Daryl got the yellow and white flag. Now, I, I think, again, that driver... Right. Misunderstood or misinterpreted the rules and was looking to gain an advantage for himself somewhere down the road. But I think Daryl and Junior were in the right on this one. I don't think there's any question about it. I understand what this driver is saying. But again, that is a misinterpretation of the rule. And I think the driver knew that. <laughs> Might have been using something for his own edge. When it was pointed out that Daryl had seen the caution lights in turn three, this competitor who didn't want to be named, he continued, caution lights don't mean a thing. NASCAR goes by flags. There's nothing in the rule book about lights. It's flags. For once, NASCAR called it right. At the time it happened. <laughs> 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 to top everything off, Nashville was owned at the time by Warner Hodgson, <laughs> <laughs> who was also the co-owner with Junior of the cars driven by Daryl and Neil. So that's one more interesting little tidbit that I did not remember. I did not either. There was a short feature in this issue on Johnny Hayes, who was filled in a car at the time for Phil and Benny Parsons with Leo and Richard Jackson preparing the engines. And Johnny said, and I love this quote, when Phil doesn't get his way with Benny, he calls his mother in Detroit and complains. And I hear from her <laughs> <laughs> when Richard doesn't get his way with Leo. He calls his mother in Asheville and complains, and I hear from her. <laughs> Johnny Hayes may have been the wittiest team owner in NASCAR at the time. He was a very funny guy. There is also a feature in this issue about Morgan Shepard's trials and tribulations trying to find a place to land in NASCAR. But Steve, I'm going to save that content for a few weeks. You want I know why. <laughs> Hi, fans. I'm Travis Carter, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, our friend Christopher W. Herbert from New Zealand is back, 
And this time he has written a piece called NASCAR scene. And you have to hear this. G'day there, Rick and Steve and everyone else listening. Kia ora. Greetings from New Zealand. Tēnā koutou, which translates to, hi y'all. Okay, I'll let y'all aside. Let's just see. Two years, I hadn't written anything new for two years. I probably haven't written anything substantial for five years. So let's just see how this goes. The NASCAR scene. 27th of May, 2021. Once upon a time, when Stone Age man was still learning to read, there was a magazine of newsprint and planting the seed. The scene was set, the sky was blue, and writing on parchment was not exactly new. In a world of motor racing, bring dreams alive and true. While history was being made, and sponsorship was adding of lemons and aid. No fear to tell the tale, yet fear to be afraid. They called it NASCAR, the nation of national born. The circuits of Charlotte, those super speedways worn. Who would have thought to see race cars powered by corn? Once upon a time, once long ago, when reading and writing was an element in print on show, the NASCAR scene vivid reminders of gasoline fumes and extremes, where history was made and recorded as if written down those olden pages much an age turning brown a weekly magazine about NASCAR stock car racing now stored we're not lost in time the vault and alignment on stream a labour of love where labour was to account and a new birth to all those who have given their time a new history of days of yesterday held fast to tomorrow the day to not die those real tears the real tears to rejoice and cry so steve not only do we have a listener in new zealand that listener is now writing poetry about NASCAR scene. That is special. Yes, it is. That's very special. What a crew we got listening to us. A poet and a beer drinker with beer rebates. No <laughs> <way>. <laughs> so we got them all. Something that Jeff mentioned. Just the obstacle. Just the optics of it probably weren't the best, but there were, but there something else that Jeff mentioned and, you know, just the optics. 